0: Hey now, welcome to the city off campus with your two favorite co-hosts, Sammy Summerfeld and Jack McFarland. We've got the director of the University of Iowa Sports and Recreation Management Program, as well as a sports law professor in the Iowa College of Law today, Dan Matheson with us. How are you, Dan?
1: I'm great, Sammy. Uh, thanks for inviting me to be with you and uh, great to be with both of you guys.
0: Yeah, of course. So my first question for you is Where are you originally from? And what got you to first start thinking about a career in the sports
1: industry? I grew up in Iowa City. uh, So I'm back home after many years of being gone for education and career. Uh, What first got me thinking about a career in sports was my my love of and, and passion for sports as I was growing up. And when I, graduated from high school, yeah, I played baseball during high school and, and I wasn't a particularly talented athlete, but I knew that, so my playing career was done uh, when I graduated from high school, uh, but I wanted to find a way to combine my love of sports with what I was gonna do for a living for the rest of my life. And that eventually led me to study sports management in college and and had me start thinking about how i could combine sports with a career
0: did you have early connections in the sports industry you know when you were in college or going into it or did you kind of have to create your own path for yourself
1: there was an element of creating my own path There, there was no relative or a friend of a family member, anything who worked in sports. Uh, it was, and, and at the time that I was going through college, the idea of sports management degrees uh, was pretty new. There weren't many around the country. And uh, so it was, there was an element of finding my own way. Uh, there, there were, you know, it's, these are the olden days that I'm talking about, but it's not like there was an internet or anything to, to search and find this stuff. So, you know, I just, I read a lot, uh, read books, read about people's careers who had careers that were inspiring and interesting to me. And uh, so it, it was really a matter of me just putting myself into a lot of internships and volunteer experiences to start uh, doing what I needed to do to, to uh, build up a, a, a collection of experiences that, that might give me some credibility since I wasn't playing sports and needed to find some other avenue into the industry.
2: You just briefly touched on um, internships and during your junior year of college, I believe you had an internship for, uh, it was media relations with the Cubs. And while you were there, you met Jeff Anderson, who was the general counsel at the time for the Cubs. In what way did he kind of open your eyes to how sport and law and all of that actually intertwined and kind of opened your eyes to what you were going to get into later in your career?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, Jack. You've done your research. Uh, the... So I interned at the Chicago Cubs and I developed a mentoring relationship with Jeff Anderson, who was a very generous mentor and also the lawyer for the Cubs at the time. And I was starting to think about graduate school options because I was in my junior year. And I didn't think that I wanted to practice law like a traditional lawyer, the, the important thing that Jeff helped open my eyes to was the idea that you could go to law school and you wouldn't be pigeonholed into a, uh, a, a law a traditional legal career. He, uh, when I came to him for advice, he was very enthusiastic about the, what a, a law school education could provide in terms of sharpening critical thinking skills and analytical skills and communication skills and, and the transferability of everything that you learn in law school to whatever path you choose in life, in business or, or law or wherever. So uh, it was through his encouragement that I got over the, any concerns that I might have had about going to law school if I didn't think I envisioned a career in a law firm. Uh, so yeah, that and and of course you know to see him working in uh, in the Cubs front office was was inspiring as well. But it was a combination of his mentorship convincing me that law school would be valuable no matter what I chose to do. And a combination of, at the time, there was a growing path of uh, front office executives in Major League Baseball who were lawyers or had gone to law school. And again, you know, these were people that I read about in books and in magazine and newspaper articles. And so I was finding examples of executives who had become general managers and assistant general managers in baseball who had gone to law school and and had talked up the preparation that they got in law school. So it was a combination of those two things. That uh, made me convinced that law school was going to be a good choice for me.
0: Towards the end of your law school career, what were your long-term career goals going into sports business? Was it to eventually become a general manager something in that capacity in a baseball ops standpoint? Or did you think you wanted to be an agent or what were you kind of hoping for?
1: Yeah, when I was in law school, I was very focused on uh, Going to work in a major league baseball uh, player personnel position. That could be in player development, in major league baseball operations, in scouting. Uh, any any. I wanted to be as close to the action as possible, uh, and and try to add value through my legal training and and other skill sets. Uh, so my my goal was to go to work in an area in a major league baseball front office that would work with player personnel decisions and uh, so that that's what i was focused
0: so i know in your spring semester of your final year in law school you were able to work for the yankees spring training and then that led to a position how did that opportunity come about as somebody studying law in the Midwest, um, you know no connection that I know of at least to Florida and to the Yankees, so how did that and no internet too. So how did that all come about?
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, during my last year and a half or so of law school, I s- spent a lot of time doing informational interviews, and I you know at that time setting up an informational interview involved writing a letter and putting it in the mail and and waiting uh, a few days for it to arrive at its destination. So I was I was mailing out two or three letters a week to Major League Baseball front office uh, baseball ops executives and in that process I developed another important mentoring relationship with a gentleman who at the time was the assistant general manager of the Houston Astros, Tim Papura. And he took an interest in me because he had also gone to law school and then gone straight into baseball. And so he saw some similarities in the path that I was following. Uh, I was fortunate that I had my Chicago Cubs experience on my resume that any time that I reached out to somebody asking for an informational interview, they saw I had some level of credibility because I had worked with such a prominent organization. Uh, But uh, Tim at the Astros Uh, spent time talking with me, uh, learning about what I was interested in doing. It all lined up with what he was interested in or what he was doing. And he advised me, for what I'm interested in doing, I should try to find a spring training internship. He said, when I was in law school, I was doing spring training internships uh, every year. And that helped lead to my breakthrough job when I graduated. And prior to talking to him, I had never thought about just asking teams, could I come work for you during spring training? So he gave me this new potential path to pursue. And I followed up by writing letters to every major league baseball team, asking them if uh, they would be interested in having me come down and work uh, during spring training. And I uh, got two uh, teams willing to accept that offer. One was the Milwaukee Brewers who held spring training down in Arizona, but they didn't have anything at all to offer me. Just said, if you can get yourself down here, we'll put you to work. The Yankees also uh, were interested in letting me come down and uh, they offered me a chance to stay at their minor league team hotel and eat at the minor league food line. So that was a huge financial burden that would be lifted off of me. And and so I took that opportunity to go down to Tampa and work during Yankees spring training. And <clears throat> I was actually working uh, primarily during minor league spring training. They have, you know, uh, Major League Baseball spring training is set up uh, with two different camps. One is the, the Major League camp and one is the Minor League camp. There are far more players and staff at the Minor League camp. And uh, so that's where I was spending the majority of my time. That, spring, that was spring training of 1996.
2: So when you got there, um, obviously you started at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, I read that you volunteered for some front office tasks and just to pick up some things to get your name on the, just to get people to recognize your name. What were some of those tasks that you volunteered to do?
1: Jack, it's pretty ugly. Uh, I I was given the lowest of the low grunt work that you can imagine. Uh, so it it was really interesting. And this is another example of where the mentoring really paid off because when I told Tim Propura at the Astros that the Yankees had invited me to come work during spring training, he counseled me and said, don't uh, turn your nose up at any task they give you. He said, they're going to give you some things that might surprise you, like going to fetch coffee or sandwiches. I was about to ask like coffee.
2: That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, he, he prepped me well for that and if you know if i hadn't had his encouragement to say you know they did the same thing with me when i was doing spring training internships so he said don't let that get you down just do everything to the best of your ability and 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 with his encouragement i went there and they did things like i mean they they really assigned me basically to the clubhouse crew and i was helping hang uniforms and lockers i was helping set equipment up on the field for uh, different drills. I was doing anything and everything. It was very physical labor and out in the sun In during spring training. It was not the front office work that one would think a third year law student is ready to get involved in. The, the important part of that is that Uh, You know, Major League Baseball teams, any professional sports team, especially like the Yankees, have scores of people lined up that are ready to go to work for them and think that they want to go to work for them. And what I recognized and understood was that they were testing my legitimate interest. How sincere was I? Could they break me? you know, did they, did I, did I go down there with one idea? And once I learned what it was really like, I would, they'd never see me again. So during the, you know, minor league spring training lasts for four weeks. And during about the first two weeks, I was doing such a good job and, and uh, paying such close attention to detail and, taking on extra duties, volunteering for anything that I could, that they started to give me more and more responsibility because they trusted me. They recognized that I I did pay attention to detail and that when they gave me something, I would get it done. So uh, at a certain point, they started making me responsible for making sure that all the drills uh on all the different fields were set up appropriately and at minor spring training we've got four baseball fields we've got several batting tunnels and uh bullpens and so forth so and with so many players there at once and staff having everything where it needs to be at the precise time is really important throughout the day to the schedule and so they gave me that responsibility and then they were watching how I handled that and at a certain point coaches were starting to come up to me and say things like this is the best run spring training we've ever had like you're really killing it and and they were surprised they were like they were coming up and asking me questions like you somebody told me you're a law student is that right they couldn't believe it uh so I could tell that that they were uh they, they liked the work that I was producing and were surprised, pleasantly surprised uh, by the output. And then I had an opportunity, I went into a, uh, the director of player development at the time and, and said, I've got all my stuff done outside on, on the field. Uh, is there anything in the office that you could possibly give me that I could work on? And he had a stack of, of uh, the, the gentleman was Mark Newman, uh, who became vice president of uh, player development and scouting and who ultimately hired me and, uh, and was a, an important influence on my life. Uh, Mark had a stack of, of uh, reports from different games uh, that had been played during spring training. And he had a certain way of recording that data that he wanted done and so he showed me how he kept that data and and he handed it to me and said you know go work on this i'll, I'll let you record all this data for me and so i think when he handed that to me he thought this will keep him busy for the remainder of spring training and you know as as i'm explaining i'm i'm i'm, I'm explaining to you that I was trying to do everything better and faster than they could possibly imagine. And so I took that stuff and I I worked all night. I stayed up all night, completed all of the reports that he was looking for. I showed up first thing the next morning and put those reports on his desk. And I could tell that he was really pleased and, and surprised that those were all done. And uh, that just continued to open up more opportunities for me during the remainder of spring training. And then the last great piece of advice that Tim Purpur at the Astros gave me was he said at the end of spring training, every club holds a big meeting where every player's name is on the board. and. The staff is going around assigning players to the different minor league affiliates, based on what they've seen during spring training based on what they did last year based on what their projections are and and he said. Do whatever you can to get into that room because you're going to learn so much you can soak up so much knowledge you can. uh, Like you want to be there if, if they'll let you and so. Everything that I had been doing for the first three weeks or so of spring training led up to asking politely, would you mind if I sit in on this meeting? And they said, sure, we'd love to have you sit in. And, and so everything just worked out really well. Uh, and and a, a lot of that goes back to having formed great mentoring relationships uh, that had critical advice to offer at certain stages in my uh, search, and, and they really helped uh, open up my eyes to what the possibilities were, even though on the surface, some of the things I was being given uh, were not, most people would not say, oh, this is the way to break into a front office management job by going and hanging uniforms in a locker uh but i was well coached by my mentors
0: the follow-up i have to jack's question about or to my question about spring training and stuff would be what led to you getting hired um full time with the yankees and how did that opportunity come about
1: yeah it was kind of everything that i described you know obviously that that month of spring training was like a, a audition they were uh kicking the tires on the car and and figuring out, you know, it's not like I went there and they were, they were thinking about hiring me, but I think over the course of four weeks, they started to think about, wow, we'd really like to have this person as a part of our organization. Uh, So it was everything that I did during spring training and the, the people in player development, Mark Newman specifically, that were interested in hiring me. Uh, were were putting the bug in George Steinbrenner's ear, our owner uh, at the time, who is now deceased, and uh, they they were letting him know we've got this guy that we we think might be a good fit for our organization. And I I started to get that sense because during my last week there at spring training, I was doing a menial task back in the clubhouse somewhere, and Mr. Steinbrenner came over to check out spring training, and uh, he marched right up to me and found me in the clubhouse. I was, I was working by myself, so he had clearly come to try to find me, and he walked right up to me and stuck his hand out and said, I hear you're the lawyer from Minnesota. And so that was my first introduction to George Steinbrenner. People had clearly been telling him about this young lawyer that is that will do anything that has a work ethic that that uh, is second to none, and he was intrigued enough to come over and find me and introduce himself. And so that w- that all went well, and uh, my introduction to him. And then as I was leaving spring training, Mark Newman, uh, who would eventually become the VP of baseball operations, uh, Mark said, I'm working on an offer for you. He said, I don't have it yet. It might take me a little bit of time, but I'll be back in touch. And sure enough, uh, a couple of weeks after I got back to Minneapolis to finish out my last month of law school, Mark called and made me a job offer.
0: That's cool. So what were your, as a first, second in your first few years with the Yankees, what was your role in baseball operations and in, in scouting? What were kind of your duties and what did that entail?
1: Yeah, a uh, little bit of everything. Uh, I, I was able to move into the front office as opposed to being on the field. Uh, that was a nice nice progression in my career path. Uh, I a, a big part of my role was uh, administering all the minor league contracts for all of our minor league players. So in a major league baseball organization, you've got uh, players who are on the 40-man roster who have signed major league contracts, and you've got... 120, 130 minor league players under minor league contract, all employees of the Yankees or any other team. Uh, Now, those numbers are going to go down a little bit as baseball restructures its player development system and eliminates some of its minor league teams. But uh, at the time, the Yankees had uh, around 130 or so players under minor league contract at any given time. And Within all, the, all of those contracts, there are signing bonuses that have to be paid. There are uh, other incentives that uh, players are due. There are salary uh, adjustments that have to be made as they move up and down in the, in the minor league system. And so there's a lot of administration that goes into managing uh, all of those contracts. And making sure that all the players are being paid according to their contract and, and getting uh, what, what's been promised to them. Uh, so there's an element of that. Uh, another big part of what we did, because I, I lived and worked in Tampa, Florida, the entire time that I worked for the Yankees. And that's where our owner, George Steinbrenner, lived. And that's where many of our baseball operations were housed and scouting operations as well. And because in Tampa we operated a 12 month a year uh, player development and scouting facility, we had players on site every day of the year working out. Uh, in, at some times of the year, it was during spring training. At other times of the year, it was uh, individual workouts. At other times of the year, it was uh, uh, low level minor league, Games being played. So there, there were different stages around that uh, facility that I also supported uh, the operations of. For example, when, when we were getting ready for spring training and then running spring training, we've got, you know, 100 or so players on site and that are staying at hotels and that. Uh, have meal money coming to them and travel plans. And there's just a lot of administration involved. So I managed details related to spring training, related to extended spring training, facility operations, a lot of Major League Baseball rules that had to be uh, adhered to as it relates to player movement throughout uh, the minor league system. reporting to the commissioner's office when players are moved, things like that. Uh, So there were all sorts of administrative duties within uh, the minor league player development scouting system. And then on top of that, because so many of our baseball operations were out of Tampa, I also got opportunities to work to, to just be a part of meetings that were held making decisions about you know the major league uh, roster as well and it's not as if they needed my input to decide you know whether to re-sign Bernie Williams or uh, or anybody else but I was very fortunate because of who I worked for and uh, my relationships in the organization with Mr. Steinbrenner that they included me in small meetings of you know their their top six to ten baseball people who at any given time during the year such as leading up to the trade deadline in the middle of the summer or uh during the off season when we were evaluating free agents or trades or anything else i was able to, much like that spring training meeting that I sat in on, I was able to be a part of those meetings. And Mr. Steinbrenner always had me keep the budget during those meetings. So whatever scenario we would work out in terms of different possible free agents or trades, I would rework the the Major League budget and then show the group what that budget was and, and helped further their conversations that way so it was a little bit of everything uh it 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 really gave me a lot of exposure to uh you know all aspects of uh major league baseball and minor league baseball operations
0: do you have any memorable interactions or experiences with george steinbrenner
1: oh yeah many some some of which i can tell you some of some i can't but um i you know there mr steinbrenner i i loved the man he was uh very good to me and and i really enjoyed him and his personality as 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 bombastic as he could be uh uh, somehow I, I just understood where he was coming from and, and got along well with him. And, and I think he appreciated me as well. We, even after I left the organization, we continued to exchange letters every now and then. Um, but at the, you know, in terms of entertaining, uh, stories, uh, involving Mr. Steinbrenner, you know, one of the things that I would say about him is that he was extraordinarily demanding and he he, he kind of treated a baseball season like a football season you know in a in a football season one loss could mean everything and in baseball you know you go through s- stretches and it's a very it it's streaky and you're gonna lose Games you're gonna get in cold spells as, a, as an organization. And so, you know, losing two or three games in a row, uh, there would be very concerning times. What's Mr. Steinbrenner's attitude gonna to be today? I mean, who is he gonna tear apart because we've, we lost again yesterday? He often, uh, it, my, my takeaway, my impression was always that he used his temper Uh, as motivation and to help keep people uh, inspired and, and always maintain a sense of urgency uh, in whatever we did. And so uh, if, you know, if things weren't going well, he might come over and, you know, tear, tear into somebody, uh, and make an example out of someone in the office uh, in front of everyone else, which would put everyone on edge for a few days. But the one thing that I, one reason I was able to get along with him uh, well, was I always kind of recognized it for what it was. I knew it wasn't personal. If 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 I was the target that day or somebody else was, he always came back and and let you know that. He still, you were still his guy, he, he still cared about you, whether it was the next day or a couple of days later, um, you know, you were always right back where you started. And it was just a temporary thing when he lost his temper with you. So as long as you didn't internalize those things, and uh, it, it was fine. Uh, I, I I appreciated that he cared so much about winning and losing because there are a lot of major league baseball owners and just sports owners in general that will not do everything possible to win. You know, it, it might be more about generating revenue and, and making money. And and Mr. Steinbrenner certainly was able to make money with the Yankees, but uh he would spend uh money in order to win because winning was Uh, a a top priority at all times and when you work in baseball operations all you can ask for is an owner who will give you the chance to go out and sign the best players to trade for the best players and so we always had a competitive advantage because in in our uh, conference rooms like during the off season uh every possible free agent's name could be on the board. And and I always thought about, man, if you're in the Minnesota Twins front office or or another lower budget team, they're, half of these players, they can't even talk about it. Don't even start the conversation. It's not worth it. Uh, so that, from a baseball operations standpoint, uh, you couldn't ask for more.
2: You've been describing a lot in depth about Uh, just how important it was to win for Mr. Steinbrenner. And in turn, that brought a lot of expectations on the people that worked inside of the organization and not just expectations for the work that they produced, but expectations of themselves and what they could bring to the organization. You said you worked 350 days a year for the Yankees while you were there. Obviously, it takes a, a very extreme level of dedication and persistence to stay with it and be motivated to come to your job every day and do that. But were there any moments during that 350 days where you were like, you know, I wish that it wasn't baseball related today and I could go do something else? Because I feel like there's not really a lot of people in the world who can relate to a job that you only technically have like two weeks off the entire year and the rest of it, you are focusing on the product.
1: Yeah, it, it's a good observation, Jack, no question. You go through uh, peaks and valleys in in a year like that. You know, I spent six years at the Yankees. And so when you add it all up, I I had, you know, maybe a couple months, where I wasn't in the office total over six years, including weekends and holidays and everything else. Um, it does take a lot of motivation and desire to be there. Uh, I, uh, you yeah, know, and and ultimately that's that was a, a big motivation behind my decision to leave. Was I was ready for a different lifestyle. So. Uh, as i was going through it obviously i was making the decision that i wanted to be there and and it was what i wanted to do at that point in my life no question about it uh, but as i was starting to get into my early 30s i was recon- i was there were two things i was looking at the people ahead of me and and thinking you know in some jobs, you would look at the people heavy you and say, oh, if, you know, if I put in a little more time, I'll, it'll, things will ease up a little bit. I'll be able to, to uh, achieve a, a different type of lifestyle. But the people that I worked with, that was just the way of life. And everybody lived that way. And there was no next level. I mean, Brian Cashman, uh, everybody works that way. Uh, and, and that's not just the Yankees. The Yankees took it to another level, believe me. Uh, to give you one example of how we took it to another level, there's it's pretty much industry-wide uh, tradition that Major League Baseball teams close their offices from about Christmas Eve until New Year's Day, and and every year th- there's a there's a a, a list serve within Major League Baseball offices where uh, the commissioner's office can circulate messages from team to team. And, and so if, if you know if, if the Yankees have to put out an announcement that other teams need to know, we, it can be circulated on that communication system. And so as, as we, we would get into the month of December every year, uh, messages would go around from every team about when their offices were gonna be closed and what the what the contact information would be for their general manager their assistant general manager the, the people that if if you absolutely have to contact the oakland a's here's the numbers to reach the baseball ops guys so uh the yankee mr steinbrenner uh always had a policy we are never shutting down and so he took it as a source of pride that all of the other teams in baseball uh, had to take time off, but the Yankees yeah. <laughs> never rest. And and he always felt that any extra hours that we were putting in was giving us a competitive advantage. So while everybody in baseball is working extraordinarily hard, Mr. Steinbrenner and the Yankees took it to another level, no, no question. Uh, so yes, for, for the six years I was there, it was absolutely what I wanted to do but in my early 30s, I was starting to recognize that there was not an end point. It would always be that way if I stayed in baseball operations. And player personnel is just kind of that that's the lifestyle. And in most sports, uh, you're working an extraordinary amount. Um, And then I, I also, I was evolving as a person and recognizing that there were other interests and hobbies and and things that that if I lived that way for another 30 years I was concerned that I would look back with regret on only having gone into work every single day of my life so uh so yeah I I that was what you asked about in terms of the severe commitment to working was part of what inspired me to move on after 6 years.
0: Before we transition to what you did after your tenure with the Yankees, um one thing that I do want to mention is you were there for four World Series championships that the Yankees won. What is a memory that kind of summarizes or recaps those championship experiences for you?
1: Yeah, good question. And that part of that what you just brought up is uh In response to Jack's question, you know, a big part of motivating you to work 350 or 355 days a year is winning the World Series every year, so that that helped. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we, we won the World Series my first year there in 96 and then we we lost in the ALCS in 97. And then we ripped off three straight World Series from 98 to 2000. And then we lost in the ninth inning of game seven in 2001, uh, just shy of four in a row. So uh, my one of my most memorable moments from that, well, there are two, uh, two that are opposite extremes. So in 96, and this kind of goes back to the idea of just put your put your head down and work. In '96, I had worked in spring training as an intern, went back to finish up law school, and then in uh, you know I, I went to work full time in mid-May and finish out the season, and we won the World Series. Uh, I was I was so low on the totem pole at that point, uh, you know I. I I didn't go up to New York for any games or anything like that. And I'll never forget the day after we we clinched the World Series. Every you would have no idea around our office in Tampa that we had just won the World Series. Like I remember going into Mark Newman's office and it was just another day of work like time to start preparing for the next one. Yep. So that was a level of intensity I was brand new to you know what winning a world championship was like, And that really struck me as, wow, like there is no time to even uh, you know whoop it up for a, a minute and and say, "Hey, you know, everybody take the day off and let's let's have fun. Uh, we earned it. So that was intense. as As I uh, progressed in the organization, and had more opportunities like go up to New York for uh, World Series games and things like that. Uh, 1999 was a memorable experience for me because uh, we, it, we, we played the Braves in the World Series and the Braves at that time had won one World Series in the 90s and a lot of National League Championships and we had won two world series at that time in the 90s and so the media was billing it as the winner of this series will be the team of the 90s uh, and and it was a, a big matchup and and we uh we ended up sweeping the Braves in 4 i was there for uh the clinching uh game and I I wound up after the game in a uh, uh, a a very exclusive uh players and, and some front office staff uh post game celebration party at the Plaza Hotel. And so that was just and and it, it was the it was it was fun to just be in that environment. It certainly, you know, it was the players time to celebrate, but just to be around those players and, and seeing them experience that ultimate high, it was Roger Clemens uh, first world series championship. And, and, you know, that's you know somebody who was, uh, was a legend and was waiting for his first opportunity. There was, there was just so much to soak in. So in response to your question, 99 was that ultimate high point
0: that's cool so transitioning from the yankees to um been going into a career path with the ncaa how did that opportunity kind of come about and what drew you to the ncaa
1: when when i made up my mind that i was go, ready to move on from the yankees uh i had a real serious heart-to-heart talk with Mr. Steinbrenner, told him what my intentions were. My intentions at the time were to relocate closer to the Midwest, closer to my family and friends and roots, and I did not, I intentionally was not searching for what the next job was yet, and part of that was because I considered it very important to make sure that Mr. Steinbrenner recognized that I was being loyal to him. And and I did not want him to interpret me searching for another job while I was working for him as a sign of disloyalty, because because I was afraid he would take it that way. And and frankly, I wanted some time off anyways. So I, I eventually left the Yankees, I, I I helped transition into the next person coming into my role. And then uh, uh, left the Yankees, and I took six months off. And during those six months, I was exploring. You know, what do I feel like doing next? It, after five, after six years of working essentially every day, I needed a little time to decompress and and get my senses before I could really think about what I was going to be enthusiastic about next. And so in that process of talking to different people and exploring my options, I was put into touch with somebody on the enforcement staff, a director on the enforcement staff at the NCAA, Mark Jones. And uh, in talking with Mark, he was intrigued by my background and said, you know, we are hiring uh, some new investigators for the enforcement staff and uh, would love to have you apply. And and so I did. Uh, I was considering a few different jobs at the time, uh, that the, I, I was interested in college athletics. I thought that college athletics might help me find a little bit more of the balance that I was looking for in my life at that time, uh, work-life balance and, uh, and the NCAA offered an even better level of work-life balance than if I was on campus because, you know, the the NCAA schedule is not driven by uh, team schedules. So I didn't have to be at an arena or at a a field every night for a different event, uh, which you would often uh, have to do if you were on campus in an athletics department. So Everything about the NCAA seemed uh, like a great option. Plus, if you go to work for the NCAA, you've got chances to to go to campus or go do anything you want. Uh, people get hired out of the NCAA office to go do different uh, jobs on campus or in conference offices all the time. So uh, I went there, and uh, uh, and and it provided the work life balance that I was needing at that point i i it was it was a perfect fit uh for for me and where I was at at that moment.
2: One question I wanted to ask uh specifically about the NCAA was about i think it's a month or a month and a half ago or so the n a i a just um they released or passed legislation to where players could receive money for their image likeness and name but they added um, that the players could wear uh, their school branding and other things for their promotions. I'm just wondering, with someone who's had experience within the NCAA and how they kind of see this type of discussion, where you see in the next, like, five to ten years how the NCAA might pivot? um, Because I know they're they're starting to warm up to the idea of players becoming – or being able to become compensated, but the NAIA this past month has really become the trailblazers, I guess you could say, and kind of leading the way. So I was just wondering where you think the NCAA is going to go in the near future with this.
1: Well, they're pretty far down that road. Uh, they're going to be proposing new legislation in January to be voted on uh, that is that is going to. Allow student NCAA student athletes to monetize their name, image, and likeness. Uh, so there's been a a, uh, a group working on developing those what those rules will look like uh, for the past year. And and like I said, the the NCAA convention occurs every January. And that is when it is scheduled to be voted on. So we're just a couple months away from an historic vote which everybody expects that will be approved, uh, no, no question. And part of the reason behind that, part of I think the NAIA's decision too, as, as you probably are well aware, There are, the state of California was the first to lead the way with new state legislation uh, that made it uh, illegal to not allow uh, college student athletes in the state to earn revenue off their name, image, and likeness under certain uh, guidelines. And many other states have followed, and and Florida's uh, law goes into effect middle of next year. They're, they're, even though California passed their law, there was a long lead time until it actually goes into effect. Florida's is the first that's scheduled to actually go into effect. So what you have happening uh, on this issue in college athletics is that the NCAA is, is trying to get to January to pass this legislation that uh will change their rules. But you have states that have now created a patchwork of different uh possible laws that are going to to treat this issue differently from state to state, which makes it very difficult to administer for the NCAA if a student athlete in California gets different benefits than a student athlete in Florida, for example. Uh, and and then the other thing that's going on is uh, federal legislators are also proposing uh, federal law uh, that uh, is is a bipartisan bill that's been uh, proposed that has support on both sides of the aisle for federal law that would over that uh, Uh, that would trump all of the uh, state laws and create some consistency, at least, but it wouldn't necessarily be exactly what the NCAA is looking for. So while the NCAA is going to, uh, everybody expects them to create new rules on name, image, and likeness, we're not sure Uh, whether a a federal law will come along and negate all of that.
0: In your role as um, an NCAA investigator, um, you've previously previously said that you were almost like a prosecutor. Um, When you would go into university offices, athletic departments or speak with athletes when you were investigating a case, what was the reception like when you would show up on campus?
1: Oh, what you would expect. I mean, uh, people weren't thrilled about being interviewed about possible NCA violations uh, most of the time. Now, there were some people you interviewed who wanted this information out because, uh, you know, for various reasons. and and But the majority of people you interviewed Coaches, student athletes, athletics administrators uh, were uncomfortable. Uh, it wasn't a situation they wanted to be in. Uh, you know, when I've described it as kind of like being a prosecutor, the NCAA has an extensive rule book. That the, the NCAA is kind of like an administrative law agency, uh, like the National Labor Relations Board or or the the Securities and Exchange Commission. So they govern these these rules that that uh, that dictate how college athletics operates. And when there are potential violations of those rules, they have investigators within their organization, enforcement uh, uh, officials that that do the investigating, that present the cases uh, to their decision makers, which in the NCAA's case is called the Committee on Infractions. And the Committee on Infractions is made up of uh, uh, people from NCAA schools usually, like uh, uh, law professors, uh, athletics administrators. It's there are coaches now on the committee on infractions former coaches uh not current coaches um but the the idea some sometimes lawyers from private practice judges uh who who are uh, serve in the judiciary that there are it's intended to be a a group of decision makers that are somewhat representative of your peers. So if you're a school and your guilt or innocence, for lack of a better uh, terminology, is being decided by people who are uh, respected decision makers and uh, people who work within your same industry, there's there's a, a goal of having those decisions about guilt or innocence being uh, uh, accepted, if you know, based on who the decision makers are. So uh, it's an interesting process. And, and back to your original question, yeah, the reception was often uh, not great, but uh, schools have an obligation to cooperate with the enforcement staff. So typically, as a NCA enforcement staff member conducting investigation, I would be communicating with the director of compliance for the athletics department. And that person understands the process and they're, they're kind of like the, uh, uh, You know, the attorney who counsels the rest of their athletics department through this process and and helps them understand what they have to do. And on top of that, many schools, there are there are a few law firms around the country who specialize in representing schools that are under NCA investigation and coaches that are under NCA investigation. And so oftentimes, when I'm When I or or somebody else in the enforcement staff would be investigating a school or a coach, we would have a lawyer on the other side to communicate with who understands the process and can explain it, even though their client may not like it, uh, they're able to help them understand it and cooperate with it.
2: So obviously these situations sound unbelievably uncomfortable at times. There's a moment where you feel like it could be normal and the next it feels like you're on the verge of confrontation. It just feels like you're kind of in an iffy area, but you've always said that you've had an innate sense of calmness and composure with these types of situations. Where did you, like, where did that come from?
1: Uh. I mean, part of it is just the way I'm wired. I, I have a, a a fairly even demeanor that doesn't get too high or too low. Uh, so I think a lot of that is just wiring. Uh, and I'll I'll never forget uh, when I, I I'll never forget a moment at the Yankees where. Uh, we were in a conference room meeting, one of those that I described you guys with, you know, maybe half a dozen of us in there, and I was sitting right next to Mr. Steinbrenner, and and Brian Cashman was right across the table from me, and uh, Mr. Steinbrenner just was screaming at me for something uh, at the at the moment, and I just kind of, you know, let him let it out and and just just kind of took it in stride. And I'll never forget, Brian uh, said to me at some break, uh, at some point, geez, Stan, you've, you've really got that thousand yard stare down, like, like you you were not phased at all by that. And, you know, he's right. I, so I guess part of it is my wiring and part of it is that I've been in a lot of situations uh, in my career, where I've had a chance to just, uh, you know, test that out and 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 be in situations that many people would find uh, uncomfortably confrontational that they can't deal with, and and I, you build up a certain level of, of thick skin where you're able to just roll with it, I guess.
0: Um, before we transition to your current position um at Iowa and how you kind of came home, um with the NCAA, if you're allowed to discuss it, what was a case that you really enjoyed investigating, or there was something about it that made it really memorable? And what was the most complicated or challenging case that you were a part of if you're allowed to talk about it?
1: Well, I'll I'll talk in generalities sure uh so <laughs> uh i'd say one of the most interesting uh cases that i dealt with was was interesting because of the coach involved and and the story that they had crafted so the case involved a a coach who had uh, br- who had recruited new student athletes to their team, and the 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 new recruits there were two of them. These new recruits were international student athletes from Argentina. So this coach had brought these student athletes to campus. Uh, like a few months before the start of the sem- the fall semester when they would enroll. And the these student athletes were living with the coach at their house. So there, there were all sorts of violations uh, for, for weeks on end based on this activity. And when 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 I interviewed this coach, their story was oh no uh you're mistaken. That was the student athlete's twin sister and and so they tried to the the coach tried to and and the coach stuck with this story uh, oh my god <laughs> and and it was interesting because there were two student athletes, one of them stuck with the coach and and stayed true to the coach and and wouldn't. Break the story, you know, stuck with this ridiculous story. The other student athlete was very cooperative with me and uh, provided all the information I needed. I, I even interviewed her family members. I was like, now, does she have a twin sister? No, she doesn't have a twin sister at all. And so, you know, even, even when I confronted the coach in subsequent interviews, now, coach. You know, I've talked to her family. She doesn't have a twin sister. Well, they always presented to me like she was her twin, like like they acted like they were twins. They're very close in age. So the story just was preposterous and just the coach would not back off. And even the coach continued with that story, even in front of the committee on infractions during a hearing, which didn't go well, as you can imagine, the committee was not amused. By that sort of behavior. So that was really a head-scratcher. It was uh, at times amusing, at times sad. Uh, It was uh, everything. So that was really intriguing. Uh, In terms of complicated, you know, most most of the cases were complicated for different reasons. Uh, I think, the most complicated they they would get had to do with when certain certain you know high the higher profile the coach or the program was that you were dealing with the more uh the more complicated it would become in terms of different steps you would have to go through in order to interview certain people or um, get permission to learn about different things. So um, it depended on on the parties involved and and in some cases uh, complicated would depend on how obvious a violation was. I, I had one case where it was a real question as to whether what happened was a rule violation or not. And so we spent a lot of time with uh, other staff members in the NCAA who had responsibility for interpreting the rules, talking about, is this set of facts a violation of these rules? And and in, in this particular case, we we took our, our case to the Committee on Infractions, alleging that a rule violation had occurred with the support of the interpretation staff at the NCAA. And ultimately the Committee on Infractions disagreed with the interpretation staff's decision and, and said, no, we just don't think there's a violation here. So, you know, situations like that, became complicated because it wasn't a clear cut violation. Um, It there, it was, it was really an intriguing job. uh, And I I enjoyed it very much while last I spent nine years uh, on the enforcement staff at the NCAA traveled all over the country to do it. um, And, and it was exactly what I needed at that point in my life. Uh I and, and I, I will say uh I really enjoyed the people that I worked with at the NCAA. It the organization is filled with uh several hundred staff members who are incredibly enthusiastic and passionate about the student athlete experience and college athletics, and and it was an enjoyable group of friends and colleagues. Uh, to go to work with every day.
0: Yeah, so transitioning from the NCAA, you find yourself back in Iowa City um, and then becoming a lecturer at first and then a professor at the University of Iowa. What kind of led to that opportunity? And why did you have a, did you always have an interest in teaching and education or was it something that kind of evolved over your phase out at the NCAA?
1: It evolved. It was not something that I had my uh, heart set on. You know, this, the, the, the pivots that I've made in my career speak to the evolution that, that most people go through in their lives. It's, it's rare that you find somebody who finds exactly what they want to do at 25 years of age and, and is as enthusiastic about it when they're 55 years old uh, after having done it for 30 years. So in that second stage of my career, I had worked for the NCA for nine years, but uh, I had made the decision that I wanted to relocate back to Iowa City specifically. My parents are still alive and uh, they still live here in Iowa City. And I I really valued the opportunity to uh, spend more time with them uh, as, as we were all getting older, and I had had precious little time to spend with them during uh, much of my career. Uh, so I told the NCAA that I was gonna move back to Iowa City before I had anything lined up, and they surprised me with a telecommuting offer. Uh, at that time, nobody at the NCAA worked remotely, and, and so I was surprised and, and flattered that they were interested in having, they, they didn't wanna lose me so they would create a unique work relationship with me. So after my sixth year working at the NCAA, I had told them that I was gonna move back to Iowa City and they made me the telecommuting offer. And so I spent my last three years when I was working for the NCAA living here in Iowa City and being signed into the office during the day and tra- I would travel back to Indianapolis to the home office every month during that time and spend several days there during the month, but my, my office was technically in Iowa City. So uh, during those three years that I was here in Iowa City working for the NCA, I was guest speaking in classes on campus, and I uh, was starting to mentor law students at the Iowa College of Law that were interested in working in sports. And through those experiences, I became more interested at that stage of my career in working with young people who wanted to follow a similar path to the one that I did. And I felt like I was at a stage in my career where I had a lot of experiences to be able to give back to students, and and so an opportunity came up to join the faculty here, and I I was at in the right frame of mind to make the leap and lead the NCAA at that point.
0: So, with you know, you're making the leap into being a teacher at Iowa, and a professor, how did you develop your teaching philosophy? And what is your philosophy? And what are the origins of some of the instrumental educational classes and tools you use within that philosophy, such as field trips, practicums, um, and you know, other classes, like your negotiations class?
1: Yeah, so, Coming from the background, the the non-traditional academic background that I have, clearly uh, uh, experience-based education was very important to me. Uh, I I, I love uh, lecturing and, and teaching students in a traditional classroom format, but I especially love putting students into real world scenarios where they can uh learn by doing and applying what they learn in the classroom to uh either hypothetical or actual challenges so uh from the very beginning i i built into my traditional classes uh you know as many uh hands-on experiences as possible whether it was a contract negotiation uh, experience or, or or field trips as as you mentioned or uh uh practicum experiences where uh i would be able to which were more like a hybrid between an internship and a traditional class. So, um, experience-based learning is really the the foundation of my teaching philosophy uh, that you asked about, um, and and what motivates me in in most of my uh, class development.
2: Jack, we can't hear you. And Mike, um, you have a quote saying, I now have a lifestyle a lot of my colleagues in sport envy. Is this basically what it is being in this classroom setting, being able to impact young journalists, young law students, young whoever wants to be in the sports industry? Is this what you really find enjoyment in? You just think your colleagues wish you had your job.
1: Oh, I I think that you know that quote is based on uh, after I made the leap. So I, this is my 10th year at Iowa. I've been, I've been in Iowa for about nine and a half years now. And so when, when I transitioned from the NCAA to teaching full time, uh, I, I talked to a lot of my colleagues over the years, because I stay in touch with my friends and colleagues back in the, in the business. And many of them, at different times, have asked about, uh, you know, what's it like? I, you know, if I was thinking about making the leap myself, what sort of things should I consider? So, uh, I've definitely had a lot of conversations with colleagues in the industry over the years who are intrigued by uh, what it's like to do this full time. Uh, some of whom may have taught a class here or there. Uh, and, and wish that, you know, there were more opportunities to do it full-time, uh, or on, a, on, a, uh, 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 or teach more classes than they already do, but, but, um, yeah, it, it, you know, doing what I do now inspires me every day. I love working with students. I, I love, uh, the relationships that are built uh, with people that you know i I recognize the position that young people who want to break into the business are in i was I was in those chairs I was in those positions getting those opportunities to start to gain some experience and and recall how significant those moments were and and so I, I just really enjoy that opportunity uh, now that I have to, to help somebody who might, might just need a, a push in the right direction, might need uh, you know, varying levels of support to, to find uh, where they belong or what their next opportunity should be. Uh, or even helping our, uh, you know, alumni that are done with school and, and helping them figure out how to negotiate a job offer or uh, other things that come up in their careers. And it, there's just a lot of intrinsic value that I find in that, that is rewarding, satisfying. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's uh, so. In terms of that quote and and my my colleagues in the industry, there are definitely a lot of colleagues I talk to who recognize if I could do more of that, like experience those uh, uh, intrinsically uh, inspiring moments, I would really like to do more of that instead of uh, some of what I'm doing at you know in my day. Daily career, so yeah, th- that's not to say that everybody wants to teach. A lot of people are just just fine in the business and and getting to dabble in it now and then by hosting a field trip or or whatever uh, they might be might do to support students along their way. Uh, but there are definitely those out there that that recognize, eh, it wouldn't be a bad life.
0: So I have two final questions for you. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. Um,
1: well, I, and I'll, I apologize because I, I warned you before we started. I can go on and I know I have.
2: What did we um, say after you warned us?
1: <laughs> you said, go ahead and talk as long as exactly,
2: you want. Exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> I've given you plenty of material to edit <laughs> down to whatever uh, you need.
0: <laughs> um, so one question one one of my final questions for you is you did graduate as a cyclone coming out of undergrad but one thing that is very prevalent if somebody meets you if they see what you're posting on social media is you have a lot of hawkeye pride what does being a hawkeye mean to you
1: well that's a great question and being a hawkeye to me probably means something uh Different than a lot of people because having grown up here, I have a different relationship with the University of Iowa than uh, uh, you know even a student who graduated from here. Uh, so, and and uh, this may or may not surprise you, but even having gone to Iowa State and graduated from there, I never fully converted to being a Cyclone, having grown up. I grew up literally a mile away from Kinnick Stadium. And wow. that's where I spent my childhood and was around it. I mean, I grew up with my dad taking me to Iowa wrestling matches when Dan Gable was a new coach in the 1970s, winning national championships year after year. I when they wrestled at the field house not you know carver hawkeye wasn't even conceived of yet and so i've got i've got a a relationship with the hawkeyes iowa the university of iowa that is uh that spans uh many decades and and goes beyond uh, just the campus and it involves the community and, and everything so so but being a Hawkeye to me uh, is uh, I've been incredibly supported and and one of the things that that I love about being a Hawkeye is the the support that I feel for what I want to do professionally what I want to do with students to help them uh, get further in their careers, uh, different opportunities that I have to to provide service to the university, you know, for example, like serving on the presidential committee on athletics and and different opportunities like that to to stay connected beyond just my teaching, uh, opportunities to Teaching the College of Law, even though my primary appointment is in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, uh, those what I have always found as a Hawkeye faculty member is a, a high level of support uh, uh, colleagues who and administrators who are are interested in finding a way that to make things work, and that doesn't happen everywhere. Uh, sometimes I talk to colleagues at other schools who express frustration and, and admiration for the University of Iowa, saying, "Wow, I can't believe they let you do that," or that nobody stopped you from, you know. Uh, it said, hey, you know, slow down. Don't do this. Don't do that. Just stick to your classes, teach, and and don't come up with all of these things that require extra effort. So, to me, a big part of being a Hawkeye, since my my uh, connection to the Hawkeyes now is as a faculty member, is a high level of support and and the ability to The ability to pursue whatever your interests and dreams are. Um, I love that about the spirit on this campus.
0: Yeah and um, one reason I asked you that is you know when people talk about Hawkeyes you are definitely an embodiment of one of the leaders on campus and um, someone a lot of people respect and um, that kind of leads to my next question which is you give a lot of it to a lot of people. Um, but what is a piece of advice you'd give to current and future Hawkeyes?
1: Uh, well I I'll uh g guess there are couple couple different uh ways that would approach that question. um uh, and and I apologize. I'm just uh, pausing for a moment. One piece of advice I would give to current and future Hawkeyes is soak up all the opportunities that the University of Iowa offers, uh, which goes right back to uh, you know what we were just discussing in terms of uh, what. What being a Hawkeye is to me, and the opportunity to pursue whatever your uh, dreams and passions are, uh, don't don't uh, uh, pass up all of the opportunities that the University of Iowa provides to uh, get everything you can out of your college experience, whether it's going on a field trip, uh, participating in uh, an experiential learning course, uh, taking advantage of professor's office hours, uh, just utilizing all of these uh, people who are on campus ready to serve students and not, not letting that pass you by. So I guess Part, part of my advice is uh, when in doubt, take advantage of the opportunities. A- attend the guest speaker, go meet with your professor during office hours to, to develop an authentic relationship with them and, and get and, and get them on your side as a mentor and, and a, a supporter. Um, uh, participate in as much hands-on experience as you can because the University of Iowa uh is offering more and more of it and and a lot of it is is extremely high quality and and can really provide breakthrough moments so that's that's one important piece of advice i would give current future hawkeyes and then sort of related to that but advice that that carries on through all of uh life and and a career are Uh, Something that I've sort of uh, described and defined as my five keys to to success in the sports industry, but I think it applies across the board. And so the five keys that I identify that were influential in my career, some of the things we've talked about today, number one and number two are closely related. Arrive early and stay late. Just show up just be present and and just doing that in life in your job in your internships uh, will will help you go far number three always exceed expectations uh, you' you have an opportunity to do the bare minimum or uh, go beyond and anytime you choose to go beyond you're gonna make a strong impression. Uh, number four, pay excruciating attention to detail. Uh, and attention to detail, one of the things, whenever I you know, introduce students on field trips or in practicums to professionals in the field and, and get those professionals to talk about what they're looking for in candidates, attention and detail is always among the top three qualities that employers are looking for. And that goes for sports, but it goes for all other professions as well. And number five, always be positive. Nobody wants to be around uh, sourpuss. Uh, nobody uh, uh, wants to, there, there's a quote, I can't remember who said this, uh, but there's I, I think Emmett Smith might have uh, been quoted as saying this at one point in time. Uh, you know, don't don't share your 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 uh, negative feelings or personal problems because uh, half the people don't care, and half the people are happy that you're that you're down. Uh, you know, bring a positive attitude every day. Uh, to work, to your internship, to classroom, and and just exuding positivity will take you a long way in, in whatever endeavor you pursue.
0: Great advice. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Um, I know on behalf of Jack and I, we both really appreciate it. And
2: um, Jack, do you want to close this show out? Of course, you guys know the drill. You know which socials to find us at. Same drill, not the same time, same place. We will see you guys later.